1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: You are listening to Parliament Matters, a Hansard Society production supported by the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. Learn more at hansardsociety.org.uk pm.
1: Hello and welcome to Parliament Matters Explains, a new bonus feature from the Parliament Matters podcast. I'm Mark Darcy. And I'm Ruth Fox. In these editions we'll be focusing on issues raised by you, the listeners, so send us your questions at hansardsociety.org.uk forward slash PMUQ. This time our subject is, what do MPs actually do?
0: Well, Mark, we've had quite a few um, questions from our listeners about exactly what is it that MPs do. And um, short answer is they're not like the rest of us, generally speaking, because they don't have a job description. So there's no sort of specifically defined tasks that they must do. You can look at you know, breaking it down. Um, They've got their parliamentary responsibilities, so they've got responsibility for scrutinising legislation, they've got responsibility for scrutinising public finances, uh, scrutinising policy. Of course, if they become a minister, then they'll have departmental responsibilities within government. Uh, and of course, then they've got their constituency responsibilities, which is a, a growing aspect, has been for, for decades, but even more so since the pandemic, a growing aspect of their workload, performing some, frankly, some of the functions almost like a social worker. We're uh, dealing with, you know, very, very local problems of, of their constituents, whether it's housing, whether it's, you know, problems with the local authority or uh, another, you know, a, another body that they've come up against, sort of an organ of the state where there's a lot of bureaucracy they're trying to fight through. Um sorting out pensions and benefits, immigration questions. Um, And then, of course, they've got a party role. So they've got a party political uh, role as a representative of their respective party in the community and sometimes with wider regional or national responsibilities.
1: Yeah, My short answer to the question, what do MPs do, is what they want essentially because a member of parliament has to choose the balance that they strike between all those different things. If you're a a new MP you may be very much on your mettle in the constituency putting yourself about and devote more time to that. Uh, If you're a new MP with a very large majority who's perhaps not unduly worried about what their constituency thinks you may be in the chamber the whole time asking questions and making life difficult for ministers or the opposition and making endless speeches on debates in um, random uh, parliamentary occasions so the constraints on that are very much from their own party uh, you know, the whips might come to a particular mp and say we'd like you to be on the bill committee that's going through the detail of this particular new piece of legislation and then you'll find yourself spending day after day potentially in in a commons committee room and they can often be either tro- subtropical or absolutely freezing depending <laughs> on the weather but you can be in that committee room going through the process of what um is slightly fictionally referred to as line-by-line scrutiny. Uh, One of the slightly difficult things about that is if you haven't been into one of these committees, you sometimes notice that a lot of MPs are going through their constituency paperwork while just Mm. sort of making up the numbers on a committee and occasionally sticking up their hands to vote on queue when their party whips tell them to. But what I'm working round to here is a lot of the time the parliamentary duties that an individual MP takes on are directed to them by the party whips. Ah, I suppose it's possible for an MP to say, no, I'm not doing that, but there may be sort of disciplinary consequences. And also sometimes the, the the party whips can make you suffer if you fail to f- do their bidding by putting you on particularly boring bill committees that, Still, that involve an awful lot of work. Yeah. You know, so, so that's, that's the, I think, probably the main constraint on an individual MP is is just doing what their party tells them to, or being a spokesperson for their party, perhaps, or a shadow minister, or even a prime minister making you a minister is, is the other way that those those kind of duties can change. Yeah,
0: and that's why it varies from from individual. Individual to individual and that's you know it, it also you've got to think about an MP in London has a rather different life. Uh, both in terms of their work-life balance, to the MP in the north of Scotland, the Highlands and Islands, for example. Yeah,
1: if you're Angus McNeill, the MP for the, the Western Isles at the moment, yeah. uh, you, you can, you can A lot find just yeah, an awful lot of travelling. Much greater than if you're the MP for the City in Westminster.
0: Yeah. So you know the amount of time that they can devote to certain things and how they balance out that constituency and parliamentary work is necessarily very, very different.
1: And indeed, you can often find an individual MP ends up going to the whip saying, "I think I'm in, under pressure in my constituency. Mm. I've got to spend more time there. Can you not?" impose on me vast time consuming duties elsewhere so that I can go and fight for my survival back home.
0: Yeah, and and that's what you're seeing already, you know, how, how far out are we from an election? It depends who you ask. A year out, possibly less. But we're already seeing MPs, even in not so marginal constituencies, wanting to be on the ground you know fighting mm. doing the, the local campaigning very high local presence in terms of visits to community events lots of mps visiting local schools um you know yeah, churches open, opening fates opening, opening envelopes f- yeah that, yeah you know. there'll be an awful lot you know they'll be out a lot of them this christmas will be out in A E departments they'll be out with the emergency services over the christmas period that's quite a common a common thing that they they will do to see sort of life on the front line over the festive period
1: i know one particular mp wants told me the story that um, they had a young child and that young child was born early in November and that young child for I think the first six or seven years of their life spent every birthday weekend going around (laughs) mining villages to a succession of different remembrance services because the MP had to be there and that's the kind of way that that, you know constituency life can intrude into your parliamentary duties.
0: And it used to be the case that that constituency work was Focus primarily Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it has intruded now um, not obviously for all m p s because of this this distance and traveling issue, but for a lot of m p s now they are getting away on a Wednesday afternoon after PMQs or very early on a Thursday morning and it's you know it's encroaching more Mm. into the, the parliamentary time. And we're also being told, you know, picking up from MPs that whereas once upon a time, you know, they'd be able to sort of preserve that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and possibly Thursdays for parliamentary activity, and there were no expectations at the local level that they'd be in their constituency now because of Zoom. Uh, as a result of the the, the pandemic and the sort of the virtual parliament, expectations have changed. So MPs are finding that when they normally be in their Westminster office on a Wednesday morning, waiting for Prime Minister's questions to go into the chamber you know, the, the local organisation, whether it's a school or a hospital trust, you know, a, just a, a group of constituents, maybe a, a, a housing association wants to speak to them about an issue. And there's a sort of expectation that they will be available, even if they're in Westminster. Well, you can get online, you, you know, here's the link.
1: And it's the MP's equivalent of the, the curse of email that, you know, your, your boss yeah. is expecting you to re- respond to emails that sort of Nine o'clock at night, when you're trying to yeah. have dinner or wind down, watching the telly. Instead, you've got to be pinging back emails to your bosses at the parliamentary. Yeah. Sort of upscaling of that issue.
0: Yeah. So you know you, you're seeing this sort of this real clash in terms of priorities and use of time between the local and the national, mm. and I think there's no doubt that we've seen a trend over many years where MPs are spending are much more focused on the local
1: mm. and, and that
0: has been accelerated.
1: Uh, yeah, I think it's, it's particularly a result of the pandemic. It's not just the Zoom thing, it's the fact that when there were the lockdowns, members of parliament found themselves having to explain the rules mm to people in their constituency who wanted to know, do the rules, let me do this. And they were almost the only people who could get an answer. The local institutions that you might otherwise have turned to mm. uh, just didn't know any more than the MP. The MP could at least go and ask a minister or get a rapid response out of a minister on things like that. And so the role kind of escalated during that crisis. And Again, when, for example, uh, there was the great pullout of Afghanistan, mm. a lot of MPs found themselves absolutely deluged with queries from people who had relatives in Afghanistan Afghanistan and who wanted to get them out which it might have been aid workers there might have been Afghans with relatives in the, that MP's constituency but the amount of constituency work that suddenly mushroomed out of nowhere because of that particular crisis was absolutely enormous for at least a, a quite considerable group of MPs
0: yeah and now, when you think about the economic crisis, the energy crisis, it's affecting not just the, the residents within their communities, but also business. So you're dealing with, you know, the, the concerns of the sort of the local business that's struggling with business rates or is struggling to pay their electricity and energy bills, um, and you know they're wanting answers about how are we going to fix this problem because my business is at risk of going under. And what you tend to find as an MP. Um, I experienced this myself because I, I worked for an MP, albeit quite a number of years ago now, is that MPs are the, the kind of the final resort. Everything else has failed. I can't get anywhere. I can't get any satisfaction. I can't get anybody to answer my questions. I'm I'm banging my head against a brick wall. The MP... And the advice surgery or writing to them, ringing their office is what we do in desperation. And very often it's almost too late for the MPs to be able to to resolve the issue and and sort anything out in the, the time that's left. And usually there aren't very many good answers left for MPs at that stage because you know avenues have been exhausted.
1: You're kind of the ombudsman of last resort. I mean, a lot of the smart MPs will try and have local councillors at their constituency surgery who might be able to help with a specific problem about planning or housing or whatever it is uh, that they can immediately get someone to talk to because this is the person there. But the person that MPs absolutely hate is the one who says... I'm not going to bother with the councillor, I'm going to go straight to the top. So if the MP somehow at the top of some hierarchy and can give orders to a local councillor.
0: But also the value of that depends on the local politics. So oh, if, if you are a Labour MP in a, an area with a Conservative council, or
1: vice versa, or
0: vice versa mm. you're not going to get that kind yeah. of help necessarily. And you're certainly not going to want the councillor from the opposition party in your advice surgery. So it, again, it's it's contextual dependent, mm. depends on what's happening in and what the political situation is, is in that constituency. Um, and and also we find within parties that you know that there isn't necessarily always a strong relationship between the MP and the councillors because quite often what the MP's raising the issues and problems if it is the same party that's running the local authority you're, you're basically being quite critical of what they're doing because you're having to raise these problems all the time and you know bang on the door of the chief executive of the council bang on the leader of the council and say can you please sort this out?
1: Well absolutely but yeah, you know, the MP can sometimes have very close links to people who can help you know can they text the manager of the local hospital to say my constituents waiting for something it hasn't happened yet can you get them an appointment those kind of things MPs can do the other point about this is, is that it can be very very valuable in the sense of being kind of good for the MP soul even if it's an awful lot of work because unlike in, in other systems where parliamentarians are perhaps a bit more detached from a particular geographical area these are people getting their noses rubbed in the daily problems and realities of their constituents you know in America it's possible to be a very very senior secretary of state or something and never actually have to meet the constituents you jet from high level meeting in washington to international summit to symposium to cop to davos or wherever it is uh, and never actually have to meet an ordinary person uh, the british equivalents have to spend regular Friday afternoons in a jammed church hall somewhere, listening to people's housing problems, immigration problems, whatever it is, and know what really concerns them. And it's not necessarily the great sort of mega public policy issues that they'd like to sink their teeth into. It's, it's the very mundane that concerns the people that they serve and who elect them.
0: Yeah, but sometimes that you can find the, the, the worlds of the minister and the local MP clash. I mean, I, I remember... Um, The MP that I worked for, he was a Foreign Office Minister and it was not unknown for us to be sitting in the advice surgery in the constituency, 6 o'clock on a Friday evening and for me having to be uh, working with his private office staff in the Foreign Office to set up a private phone call in the advice surgery so that he could go off into another room to take it, to take a phone call with one of the defence ministers in the United States at the Pentagon to talk about basically, you know, more often than not, problems in Afghanistan that they were having to resolve and he'd have to step outside the advice surgery while everybody else outside was waiting with their complaints about you know the local I can't get my appointment with my GP or you know one one sort of problem was often potholes I mean that is you know a huge issue for for local MPs getting uh, constituents coming through the door complaining about that and you know that juxtaposition of a major national issue international issue and the most local and mundane you could possibly imagine and you know, within seconds, they were having to turn from one to the other. The defense minister on the other end of the phone wasn 't to know where he, where he was uh, in the constituency and you know and the defense minister in, in the u s would be in his nice plush office in the Pentagon in, in just outside Washington him, with know. a flag behind him, you know huge staff and uh, an our minister was sort of sat, sat in this sort of dingy you know advice center uh, with uh, with his local Westminster staff sitting in, trying to plug the phones in the right way. <laughs>
1: But there's also the question of how much influence do individual MPs have and and how do they use it? And I suppose the thing that an, a member of parliament has, whichever party they're in, is that they do have a bit of access to government ministers where there's some problem. I mean, the, the, the classic example is, you know, buttonholing a Home Office minister about an immigration issue, for example. Once upon a time, MPs even had an almost sort of statutory right to stop someone being deported while their case was reconsidered. I think mean, that went that ship sailed quite a while ago now, but uh, it used to be the case. So that's where I think the prime influence lies for a member of parliament, is that they can whisper into the shell-like ears of ministers, often while they're going through their incredibly extended voting process, where it takes 20 minutes for MPs to file through a division you lobby. Know,
0: well, this this is why when, you know, the issue of electronic voting, and, you know, should we still have MPs walking through the lobbies to register their vote in person, taking 20 minutes to do so, um, would it not be more effective, more efficient to have electronic voting, like they are doing lots of other parliaments? and the answer comes back from a lot of MPs is is no and that's the reason they want that opportunity in the lobby to be able to sidle up to a minister and make their case, make their point, possibly get a commitment to have a meeting, uh, be put in touch with a civil servant who can help them answer a, a policy question, you know, whatever it may be. But that, that personal contact direct with the minister is what they want to preserve. And it is an unusual part of the system that is not a feature of many other parliaments.
1: Absolutely. If they all just had to swipe a card or turn a key or something to express their vote, they just wouldn't have that chance to buttonhole a minister and it matters more than people might imagine. I mean, of course, there are other formal ways you can make a point. You can have an adjournment debate at the end of the day where you want to look about the planning issues in your local high street or access to your local A&E or whatever it is. You can have a Westminster Hall debate on a similar subject. You can get a group of MPs together to raise a generic subject. So there are all sorts of ways that MPs can make a point, but the person-to-person one seems to me usually the most important, informally, below the radar, but nonetheless important for that.
0: Yeah, and that ability also to be able to say to your constituents, "I've spoken to the minister," I've mm. you know, I've had that personal face-to-face contact. It also matters, of course, for party management purposes. You know, the ability. You know, you, you always hear this sort of the the minister who's in trouble has been seen in the tea room in, in, in <laughs> Westminster, out you know, meeting the the the, the backbenchers, trying to you know, soothe relations over whatever problem they, that they've got um, that week. Um, and and that personal contact, a lot of what happens in in politics and in parliament that is really essential and valuable to keep the the, the wheels moving, to sort of grease the wheels, is what happens off stage, in the the private behind the scenes. Bits of, of work that, that we don't see, unless, of course, you're a journalist like you, Martin. You're sat in, it's sat in Port Colley's House uh, Cafe, um, collaring them as they, as they walk uh, as past. As they go
1: past. But what we're not talking about here, and, and listeners will notice this, is we're not talking about individual MPs having a vast amount of leverage over laws that are passed on a day-to-day basis. The way you get leverage over that is either the government majority is so small that the individuals really do have a lot of traction. Or alternatively, if a group of like-minded MPs can get together and say, up with this, we will not put, you've got to make changes, ministers. But most of the time... MPs are, I'm afraid, lobby fodder. They are marched through the lobbies on the orders of their party whips, often for stuff that they don't really know about and haven't even read.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not as true today as it used to be. I mean, you know, you can go back. You know, again, I'm quoting the work of Professor Philip Cowley um, at Queen Mary, um, who's who studied sort of backbench rebellions. But you can go back to the 1950s and find whole sessions of Parliament where there were no government backbench rebellions. That's very rare these mm. days in a, in a session. Um, but yeah, it's difficult to get a sufficient, sufficient number of MPs together on an issue if a government has a majority, because, you know, first of all, they're signed up, to, you know, they are party representatives, the whip... It is, you know, a form of discipline, and as you say, you know, there are consequences that flow from it. If you lose the whip, mm-hmm. um, there are consequences that will flow, even if you don't lose the whip. The pressure will be applied. The, the
1: whip can be cracked to kind of phrase, yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: But also, um, the politicians recognise that they're also dependent upon the party. For example, for support, if they're in a marginal constituency, you know, it works both ways. Loyalty, you know, is a, is a two-way street. Um, but yeah, the, there is no doubt that there is a real concern amongst many. Sort of observers like us of Westminster that the legislative role of parliamentarians in the House of Commons is being abrogated
1: yeah, it 's not as big as it ought to be on most things occasionally when there 's a really hot topic which perhaps has concerns that cross party lines you can occasionally get stuff done as a backbencher that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise, but it is quite a rare occasion and In in some ways, the role of a backbench rank-and-file MP who's not particularly earmarked as some for future glory as a cabinet minister or something like that is is a pretty low-profile, almost demeaning one.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things, I think, looking ahead to the to the general election and the, the new cohort of MPs that will be coming in, and it's you know mm. we don't yet know what the final number will be, but already, based on the number of, of MPs who've announced that they are stepping down, it's going to be a significant yeah. level of churn. That's
1: before you start factoring in seats changing hands. Yeah,
0: <laughs> so if it, look at the polls. Um, and one of the things that time and again you find amongst a, a new group of MPs who come in after a general election is how... They struggle to find their feet in those those early months. It's a very, very unusual and different environment. And, you know, the pressures are, are piling in to, to be up and running immediately. You know, some of them, have, you know, they might never have really ever looked at a bill. Yeah. Piece of legislation. They wouldn't know, you know, um, a statutory instrument. What is it? They haven't. It came they haven't up and bit them. Yeah, they don't know what the estimates process is. So there's the procedural and, and, and sort of technical side of scrutiny that they're going to have to learn. And Westminster is sometimes, you know, it's another language. It does not make its rules, the processes, as accessible and as easy to understand, not just for the public, but for its own people.
1: It's another language. It's also another country. I mean, if you're an MP (laughs) whose constituency is some distance away, you may be operating there for several nights a week on your own, without your family and and, and friends. You'll have to make new social connections. You'll have to try and uh, find ways of staying out of trouble, frankly, as well. Make sure that you're gainfully employed during that period and you're using the time effectively. And it can be a very alienating, mm. and very lonely environment mm. for someone who doesn't perhaps quite fit in.
0: Yeah, I mean, we found, um, we, did, we did some research uh, in the, amongst the new cohort of MPs after the uh, 2005 election and then after the 2010 election. And we, we sort of surveyed them at different points in time after they'd got elected in a study that was called A Year in the Life from a Member of the Public to Member of Parliament. Um, and it tracked a lot of different aspects of their of their lives. But one of the things that came out of it was how quickly they were alienated. How, frankly, some of them were, you know, saying it after three months. You know, what what are you most looking forward to? Finishing. <sighs> you know, what are you most looking forward to? The Christmas break because I, I, you know, I want away from here. Um, and it. it, it I think that's going to be a concern. If the parties, particularly assuming the Labour Party wins the election based on the polls, they could have quite a a significant number of new members. I think they need to think very carefully about how they're going to manage Mm. the induction and the orientation programme for new members. And organisations like ourselves, the Constitution Unit, the Institute for Government and and others can help and assist with that. Um, But, you know, they need to give some really careful thought to, to... what support they're going to put in place as parties, what, you know, mentoring, um, you know, sort of almost like buddying systems between mm. older hands, uh, MPs who've got a lot of experience who can who can help them. Um, and, you know, try and get them over those, those first few months. Because as you say, often, and we found this after the 1997 election, we found it after the 2010 election, you have a big churn, a lot of new MPs coming in. Um, there will be some who sink and there will be some who swim. And they need to find ways to manage those who are at risk of sinking.
1: I mean, one suggestion is give them something interesting to do. Give them something that feels like it's a role. This is where perhaps places on the select committee system can come into play, because those can be fantastically interesting if you if you can get a place on a select committee that you particularly want to be on. I mean, it can also be that you're sent off into the salt mines a bit by the whips. so there was a point um, a couple of parliaments ago where any uh, Conservative MP who had even a vague Scottish connection was being drafted onto the Scottish Select Committee, because there weren't any Conservative <laughs> seats in Scotland at the time. Uh, so if you had a muck in your name, you know, <laughs> off, 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 off you went, more or less, regardless. Um, but like
0: the, the HS2 bill is gone, so uh, well, you yeah. know, you're not going to get you're not going to get put onto that. Uh, yeah, the HS2
1: but. bill committees are seen as a kind of parliamentary gulag yeah. for the, for the yeah. worst offenders as well. But the, yeah, the, there are useful and very very interesting things that can be done on select committees. Although the competition for places, because they have to be elected from within party groups to get onto mm-hmm. select committees, can in yeah, the really top ones, foreign affairs or defence, for example, uh, can be pretty pretty serious competition.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the um, advice that um, an MP that I, I spoke to about this said, um, the best advice he would give to a new member is to think about a couple of issues that really matter in your constituency that you care about and that you want to try and fix and a couple of matters at the sort of national level and that you you are interested in and care care passionately about and if you can get a link between the the two all the better but find an area a niche for yourself that you you know can focus on can concentrate on can get some expertise in and it'll give you a purpose in Parliament.
1: Absolutely, and if you do speak on a constituency matter in Parliament, it can get picked up. Which is why you endlessly see at prime Minister's Question Time. People suddenly asking the Prime Minister about some particular very niche constituency matter. Uh, people do notice that, and they uh, and it does get picked up and noticed in the constituency and covered in the local media if there still is any local media in the constituency. Yeah,
0: which is a declining, a declining issue. Which brings us to, to, Mark, to one of the sort of question, areas of questions and comments that came in. is A couple of weeks ago, the political editor of ITV, Robert Peston, he basically puts out some ideas and proposals about um, how he thought Parliament should be reformed. And, and key to it was, he thought, dealing with the role of the, the MP. And he proposed that um, we should get rid of two thirds of them, pay them £250,000 a year, Um, transfer a lot of the constituency responsibilities to an elected House of Lords. And he thought that this was uh, a potential solution to some of our problems. And it seemed to me, um, I'd welcome your thoughts on this, because it seemed to me that... For somebody who spent quite a lot of time around politics and Parliament, that didn't really seem to grapple with the key issues and the key problems that that surround the role of of, of MPs.
1: I'm not quite sure what problem that is the solution to. No. I saw that and I was a little bit baffled by it. When they contemplated at one point under the coalition cutting the number of MPs from 650 to 600, they then did a sort of cookie-cutter exercise to redraw constituency boundaries so they were all a little bit bigger. And what you found was that MPs would suddenly be dealing in practical terms, with many more local authorities than they were before. So when they were being asked to solve a housing problem, you know, they'd have to have, uh, develop contacts with lots more local authorities, health boards, hospitals, or whatever it is, whenever the, some problem arose. And that was just a sort of ugly practical difficulty of making a relatively small cut. Now, if, you, if you're going to cut the number of MPs by two-thirds, um, then they're going to have that problem times ten, I I would have thought. And I'm not quite sure how transferring constituency responsibilities to an elected House of Lords helps the thing. You could end up with people competing... Uh, with each other in a probably unhelpful way. One of the great virtues of the House of Lords at the moment is that unencumbered by constituency work, peers can focus on legislation far more than MPs can. Stick a load of constituency duties and then all having to have surgeries, etc., onto the work of a peer. And I think that the quality of scrutiny for new laws would go down even below what it is at the moment. And that would not be a good thing.
0: No, and I mean, one one of the arguments that Robert was making was that this is, you know, partly to try and increase the competence of MPs. I mean, that's a very subjective thing. Um, Mm. I don't think the salary... I mean, my sense is that the salary is not a barrier to to candidates. If you're doing it
1: for the salary, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah,
0: yeah. However Um,
1: much you paid, and there will always be people who would be fabulous MPs who decide they can't afford to do it.
0: Yeah, but but also most most people that I've ever spoken to who've, who've thought about you know going into parliament or you know standing for selection and haven't gone ahead with it it's it's nobody's ever said to me that the salary was the problem it's you know the lifestyle it's the split lifestyle with your family in one place lifestyle it's being
1: eviscerated on social media
0: it's the the harassment um and also
1: the what we've been talking about earlier the humdrum nature of the job when you hear Mm -hmm. the kind of treadmill Of political life in Parliament.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I was told in in 2010 by um, a a female MP who became uh, a cabinet minister a few years later. But in her first few months in Parliament in 2010, she said that the biggest shock to her was loss of control of her diary. She'd been uh, she had a background in business, in banking. And, you know, she'd reached a level of seniority where she had control over her diary and she had control over her own personal time. And the biggest problem was the lack... Of control once she got into Parliament, because she was at the mercy of the, of the whip. You know, the announcement of business every couple of weeks, not much in advance, um, and you couldn't plan for anything. And you know, she she couldn't decide herself what to what what she would spend her time on.
1: Well, that's quite an interesting exploration of what MPs actually do. A plenty is the answer, but not necessarily the things you might accept. hope you've enjoyed this. Thanks, everyone. Well, thanks for listening to that. Uh, We hope you enjoyed that discussion. If you've got any more matters you'd like us to explain about things that go on in Parliament, why things happen in a certain way, why certain other things don't happen, you can send your questions to us at hands forward slash PMUQ.
0: Parliament Matters is produced by the Hansard Society and supported by the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. For more information, visit hansardsociety.org.uk/slash/pm or find us on social media at Hansard Society.